That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I like to think that this radio show is different than other radio shows. You tell me if I'm just saying that or if you really believe it. I believe it. I think it's different. There's a measure of authenticity and kind of a, uh, you know, I always say like stories in life, in real life, they're not black and white. They're lots of shades of gray. Life is not, um, life has knots in it, right? Like a rope that has knots in it. It's not always clean and pretty. And I and I think in a good way, this show is that way. So I want to ask you a question. For those of you who are early arrivers, you're in the club early today. People who are showing up later don't need to hear about this. But yesterday on the program, I started the show by asking you about your feelings as it pertained to the return of Damian Lillard to Portland. And, uh, you know, I talked about his 37-foot shot against Paul George and the fact that he has more points than anybody in Blazers history. And we can debate whether, you know, Joe Cronin, the Blazers GM, called him the best Blazer to ever wear the uniform. I don't think so. I think Bill Walton. You can make an argument for Clyde Drexler as well. Carried the Blazers uh, farther in the Western Conference than Damian Lillard did. That's a debate. But I asked you on yesterday's show, I said, how are you feeling about the return of Damian Lillard? And I opened the phone line, and I gave the phone number, and then, you know, I turn away. I've got multiple computer screens here in the uh, studio, and I think there's four screens here now. And and I turned away from the screens because I'm just having a conversation with you and told you kind of how I felt, and I went on like a seven- or eight-minute diatribe. And then, and then I turned back to the phone screener, expecting to see you on hold like a lot of you are uh, you know every day on this show and as we talk about a variety of subjects i'm i'm a host who likes to take calls i like to know what you're thinking you make me think about things you speak for a certain segment of the audience um it's why i include you you're part of the orchestra as it pertains to the show and i turn back to the screener and nobody's holding and that's unusual it's really unusual for the show and 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 i thought well Maybe people didn't understand the assignment. Maybe I didn't do a good job, and I kind of explained it again. And then Stephen and I talked about it. We talked about Lillard. We talked about the failure of the organization to build around him. I told you how I have mixed feelings about his return because, on one hand, it's nice to see Dame, and you know he's doing all right, and he's there's life beyond the Blazers. And then, on the other hand, it's a reminder to me of what could have and should have been in Portland. And I turned back to the screener again, and... Somebody was holding, wanted to talk about college football. 
And and so I guess I want to ask you this, if we can have a real conversation. Is it that people don't want to have a conversation about Damian Lillard because you've already had it? Took lots of calls when he left for the Milwaukee Bucks. People frustrated with the Blazers front office. Is it because you are tired of what is going on with the Blazers? There's an exhaustion with Jody Allen as the trustee in the franchise's direction. Is it because it's painful and you don't want to deal with it? I'll be honest with you. Another thing I've noticed in 17 plus years of doing this show is that, you know, after a big win by Oregon, Oregon State, the Blazers, you know, after a national championship game, after a World Series, after a Final Four, in the wake of your team winning, a lot of you show up. And it makes sense. I mean, there's enthusiasm for it. People want to relish in it. You want to sort of immerse yourself in the experience of your team's successes and that positivity and that glow that you feel is part of why what draws you to sports. But I have noticed, too, that, like, you know, when Oregon loses to Washington a couple of times this season or Oregon State loses a game or the Blazers lose a game or two or ten, um, you don't so much want to talk about it. You want to talk about everything but that. Is it that with a Damian Lillard that, you know, you view it and you view his time in Portland and now his appearance back in town in a Milwaukee Bucks uniform, do you view it as a loss? Does it have that same sobering impact on you as a sports fan? You tell me. 503-417-7575. Tell me what it's about for you. Because I really am curious. And in sometimes I come on the show and I think the show's going to go in one direction and it goes in a whole other direction. And sometimes those are the best shows. And yesterday's show did that uh, right off the beginning of the program. And we ended up, you know, in segment number two in a whole different place. But I am left thinking, like, am I the only one, and I can't be, who's out here sort of absorbing Lillard's return and having mixed feelings about it and saying, hey, this is how I feel about it. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com as well. I also can tell you that, like, everybody's covering this story and maybe that's it. Maybe there's just uh, maybe you're weary and you don't want to hear about it. You don't want to deal about it. It's a reminder of something that's not necessarily a positive in your in your mind. Uh, 503-417-7575 is a number. I want to have a conversation about that. Why do you think people weren't enthusiastic yesterday, at least talking about Lillard? And and I and I full disclosure, I know as an afternoon drive radio show. That you're inheriting me, you know, if you're in the Portland market on 7.50 the game at 3 o'clock. And it may just be you dealt with it. Yet you talked about it all morning. And you talked about it with your friends. And you talked about it with your coworkers, And you talked about it with your kids. And you called your best friend and you texted about it. And then by the time you get to the show, you're kind of like, you know what, man? Take me somewhere else. Calgon, take me away, so to speak. Let's go to the phone lines. I want to know what's it, what is, what's it about. What is it about? I want to know why. You didn't want to talk about Damian Lillard yesterday, and maybe why you don't want to talk about him today. Let's go to the phone lines. Brandon is in Portland. Brandon, let's have a conversation. Hey, what's up, John? I can tell you what it's about is this. I think that Blazer fans, for the last two years, we 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 recognized and understood we had to move on from Dame. But, but I think that being said, simultaneously, we, we wanted this unrelenting loyalty. We I know it sounds sick, but we almost wanted Dame um, 
to be traded, but not because he asked for it, because organization um, decided to trade him. We, we wanted Dame to go, but we wanted him to go on the organization's terms. And I think that once he made the choice for himself, even though it was understandable and the right choice, I think it made us as Blazer fans sick. Anyway, uh, that's my take. Thanks, yeah. Tom. I appreciate that. And there's part of that, I think, look, I, I say it all the time. Why do you come to sports? Why is sports part of your life? I can tell you uh, from the time I was growing up until the time, you know, today as I speak to you, for me it's an escape. It's an escape from everything else that, like, is kind of yucky and complicated and uh, aggravating. And, you know, that's why sometimes I come on the show and we're talking about, you know, the modern world of sports and lawsuits and transfer portal, NIL, conference realignment. And sometimes I'm like, man, I don't I just I want to deal with the fun part of sports. Uh, Jake is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Jake, welcome. I uh, love the show, John. Uh, you guys do a great job. Uh, Thank you. But on, on this topic, it, 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 it's more the larger topic for me. and I'm going to sound like a real get-off-my-lawn person here. Okay. But uh, NB, the NBA product itself is so, like, I'm 45 years old. Uh, I've tried several times this year to make it through an entire game. And when the score is like 110 to like 120 with like five minutes to go still, I feel like it, it, it I don't know, like I said, I'm going to sound like a real old guy here. That's okay. It sounds like it's only, you know, they're only playing 50% of the game. And I, I, I'm like, I, the viewership has to be down. I cannot see the NBA as a product growing. I could totally be wrong about that. But, uh, yeah, for me, it's the larger conversation of, like, what the hell? What are we watching? You know? And, yeah. and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to try to blame it on, you know, Steph Curry and three-pointers and all that. It's just a more of, like, no, like for me, to be honest, I, I, I enjoy the WNBA much, much better because they're actually playing what I know as basketball. I don't know. That might sound crazy. but No, no. Look, you speak for a segment of the audience, and a segment of the audience – is out on their front lawn shaking their fist at the moon. And that's okay. And so I don't begrudge you for saying your thoughts. Like Jamal Crawford, um, you know, he talked with Dan Patrick this week about the scoring in the NBA. Individual scoring is up. Kobe's 81 points. You know, Patrick had asked Jamal Crawford, is it safe? And I thought Jamal Crawford gave a really candid answer to that. I think it's bad for the game that it's happening this often. Okay, uh, If it was, you know, an anomaly and happened once, a year, it would be something to, to really be revered. Now it's happened so often, you don't know when it's going to happen. I'm not sure how good that is for the game to happen this often. So you think Kobe's 81 is safe? I think it's safe. I hope it's safe. Because that 81 <laughs> was against it was against a zone, it was against three defenders. It, go back and look at the spacing and, and how tough those those makes were on the 81-point night. And yeah, we, we need to appreciate that for sure. Jamal Crawford, uh, you know, again, pointing to Joel Embiid and Luca and Devin Booker, who have all gone for 60-plus, and in some cases 70, um, in recent weeks. And we're saying, I told you the scoring would be up, but part of it, I think, is the NBA culture. Part of it is the fact uh, Crawford's sort of alluding to the fact that, you know, like uh, the caller, they're not playing defense. Dave in Vancouver. Dave, uh, help us out with this topic. Nobody wanted to talk about Lillard yesterday. Why? Uh, same topic, but that's not the question. 
I'm really looking forward to tonight's game. Not going to it. Going to watch it on ESPN. I'm curious. Maybe you could give me some insight. Are they going to show the starting lineups on air? That's what I'm most interested in, like the ovation he's going to get and all that, more than the game itself. Yeah, I I think they will. I think television's always in it for the drama and the theater, and I think there's some drama in theater, and I think, you know, know, Mark Mason, the public address announcer, he had sort of put out a poll, I saw it this morning, that, you know, how should I, what kind of introduction should I give Damian Lillard? Should I give him a special introduction, or should I just give him the usual visiting team introduction? And I think he's going to ham it up. Uh, it was like ninety percent of the people say, you know, give him a special introduction. Um, you know, but you have like everybody's getting on board. DraftKings has a special Damian Lillard return to Portland bet that they're offering. Does he score more than twenty five points? Twenty five point five points in tonight's game. Everybody's sort of getting in on that action and. I'm really curious to see, like, will he come out and will he try to score 50? Or is there poor form in going back to your old team? And is that rubbing your team's face in it? And Stephen and I talked about it off air. And, Stephen, you know, I won't speak for you, but you seem to think it depended on the player. You know, really go for it and have a big showy night. Yeah, I do. I, I think it kind of depends on the player. And in circumstance, I think he's the type of guy that's going to want to come out and score a bunch. And not saying that because I think he's a selfish player, but he kind of has some selfish tendencies when he plays basketball. So I, I think for him, he wants to go out and he wants to prove, yeah, you know what? I should, you know, I, I deserved better here in Portland. And this is what I can still do, even though you guys didn't believe in me. You guys traded me. Uh, you didn't build around me, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think if it was more of a, you know, a team type of player. You know, we we saw even the CJ McCollum didn't necessarily have a great first game. He came back now that he's you know an unselfish player. But I think it just depends on on your on your mindset. And Dame always has that killer mindset when he's on the court, like he's going to underscore every time. So I think he's going to try to come out and score. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think if it's a guy, you know, if it was a if it was a true point guard, you know, you, we talk about the caller, you know, talking about the old days. If it was a true point guard that's looking to get his teammates involved, he'd probably try to get twenty assists. But I think with Dame, he's going to try to score as many points as he can just because that's his mindset. It always has been. I don't think of Damian Lillard as a passer. Like, I think of him shooting a deep three. And so I think he'll he'll come out and he'll try to put on that kind of show. And uh, who knows how far he'll go with it. Let's go to Cam and Eugene. Cam, welcome to the conversation. What do you got? Hey, John. <clears throat> the day Dame got traded, I got a message from a friend of mine on the East Coast. And it was just two words that said, I'm sorry. I knew what it was referring to, but I didn't understand why the moment it struck him so bad. And then it remi- uh, I, I remembered that we had been talking, and I had told him, he asked me if there was one person Portland could get, who would it be? And I told him in the moment it was Giannis. And we talked about, like, small markets, and there's this perceived ceiling on Portland because it is a smaller market. And I think part of the reason it hurts is because – Milwaukee's not supposed to be the place that can take a guy like Dame away from us. If it's Miami, okay. If it's, hmm. you know, Golden State or the Lakers, you know, you understand that, even though it hurts and you don't want it to be ha- uh, want it to happen. But we're told as fans, year in and year out, there's a feeling on Portland because it's a, you know, a middle-of-the-road market. It's not a huge market. You can't get the big names. So to see it go to a see Dame go to a team that was roughly the same size and market as Portland is, I think it makes it hard because it's not that it's not that we can't do it. It's just that we can't do it. And we're not bad fans for being apathetic. You give a team as much as five years for a rebuild, you know, and you stick with them. 
but it's been over two decades now, and it's just delusions of mediocrity. And the other half of it is it's Groundhog's Day. We don't want yeah. to see Damian Lillard is now LaMarcus Aldridge. He is uh, Clyde Drexler. He left. He realized what was going on, and he left to go get his ring. Um, yeah. So I yeah. support him. I cheer for him. As a Blazers fan, Dame in Milwaukee is the most interesting thing going on this season. Yeah, I had I had uh, I went to a Starbucks coffee house today, and the barista is a big sports fan, and he uh, he said to me, uh, "Hey John, from the back, you know, he was working like the drive-through part. He said, "Hey John, he said, uh, you know, uh, this is the game of the year for Blazer fans, and uh, you know, and he said I'm going tonight, and I said, you know, that's cool, and then I started thinking about it, and I was like, gosh, if the game of the year for Blazer fans is let's go see the guy." who, you know, left our team for Milwaukee, uh, and that's the game of the year, man, That that's not how it should be. Like, I'm not knocking on the fan, but that's not how it should be. And that's the fault of the organization, not the fan base. And I think in a lot of respects, Blazer fans empathize with Damian Lillard because they have been through it as well and went have gone through it, like the caller said, for decades. And Lillard went through it as, you know, he gets drafted in 2012. He went through it as well. And and you went through it together. You know, granted, he made $250 million doing it, and you got a lot of pain doing it, but you went through it together. You're dealing with the same problems. A front office that uh, kept talking about him as being the kind of player worth building around, and yet, ironically, never really built around him. And, you know, I just slapped my forehead at, at that absurdity. Robert's in Vancouver. Robert, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks for taking the call, John. I've been a Blazer fan most of my life. I live in Vancouver, been here forever. You know, I've been through the 90s, the early 2000s. And I've, seen the, I've seen the tools come and go. And, you know, Dame deserves our respect. I think he, you know, deserves everything that we can give to him, even on his return coming back. I, you know, this issue that we have now, I believe, is just the chain of ownership and the things that Jody Allen has done because – there's nobody there really running the, the operation, the team, you know, and it's hard to watch again because we've all gone through it before. I mean, if you've been a Blazer fan, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy that he's where he's at. I don't think that, you know, I still don't think that he really wanted to go. Go ahead. If we could have got the tools for him, you know, which I know that they could have, but I don't know that that was going to happen with the situation the team's in and the ownership at this point. Yeah, ownership, and let's not forget Burt Cold management. And, and uh, you know, it, it it is interesting. And you watch the Milwaukee Bucks, a small market team, with a star player that they drafted in Giannis, come to Portland, and that's the team, that's the franchise that got your guy. And Caller said it earlier, yeah, I expected to lose him to Miami or the Lakers or the Knicks. You like you could almost live with that, but what you don't want is you lost him to the Sacramento Kings or the New Orleans team or Milwaukee or because it reminds you that like isn't that what the Blazers should have been doing? Shouldn't they have been going out to find another star player to put alongside Damian Lillard all along? And they failed to do that. 
And so, yeah, it's about what I thought. Like, I love the people who called in. I appreciate that. But, you know, I, I always go back and listen to the show. I digest it afterwards. I listen for what worked. I listen for what didn't work. Frankly, in 17 years, if I went back and listened to the early days of this radio show, I would cringe because the show has improved and improved and fine-tuned to the point where when we get a segment like yesterday and I put out the call for Damian Lillard, let's talk about Lillard, and and it's crickets back, I'm going, okay, did I miss something here? Did I ask the wrong question? Did I set it up wrong, the topic wrong? Did people not understand what I was talking about? Or am I out in left field? Or, you know, it really stands out and it's glaring to me. And so it helps to have people call in. And and what I'm hearing from callers is that, you know, there's a measure of apathy that this NBA franchise has infected the market with, of course. That happens when you lose and you lose and you lose. And people go, I just, I haven't had enough of that. I can't do it. You know, it's not like you're going to put a bag over your head, but you just don't want to talk about it. It's not fun to talk about the Blazers. They're not cool. They're not fun. They're not interesting. They, they don't move the needle. They don't inspire you. They don't make you believe anything is possible, and sports should do those things. And so I'm hearing a measure of apathy. I'm also hearing from people who are going, hey, this is a little bit painful, and, you know, I'm rooting for the guy. And I'm hearing from other people saying, I don't, you know, the NBA game just doesn't resonate with me. I think, you know, I don't think the NBA is anywhere near the NFL when it comes to popularity and interest. I mean, the ratings will demonstrate that. But I also think, you know, tonight it's going to be interesting to see what Lillard will do. And I'm not as into, like, will the fans give him a standing ovation as I am into what is he going to do? And is he going to try to drive, like, a stake through the Blazers organization's heart and score 50 or 60 and put on a show in the name of, you know, like, damn it, this 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 thing never should have ended or whatever. Does he make a statement tonight or not? Well, and he's, he's said all the right things. He said, you know, it, it was he has no hard feelings to Portland. Like, he loves Portland. But at the same time, there has to be some type of feeling of, 100%. you know, Joe Cronin and you know, Burt Cole, Jody Out didn't do enough to put these pieces around me. And it's been, you know, like everyone said, it's been 24 years, John, since the Blazers have been a real contender. So I, I get the apathy. It's there and it's real. Um, I want to take a couple more calls. We're going to talk about the Portland Diamond Project's baseball effort. Uh, Maury Brown with Forbes Magazine is coming up here in a couple minutes. Uh, Mike in Portland. Mike, go ahead. What's on your mind? Say, so John, man, I just wanted to say that one of the key factors to know that basketball is not great is because kids don't say, I want to be like Damon Lillard. I want to be like LeBron James. They don't say that no more. So basketball have lost the kids. Mm. It ain't like, hey, I want to be like Mike Days. Basketball is horrible. And Damian Lillard, I'm going to tell you something, man. I look at Damian Lillard like being a crook. He came to Portland, he got paid, and he didn't give nothing in return. Mm. You don't get no championships. You didn't get anything. So I'm not surprised that um, – Ain't nobody talking about him because he's not. What did he do? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think he made people think anything was possible. He gave people some thrills. He scored a bunch of points, more points than Clyde Drexler scored in his career. But, Mike, you're right to an extent. Like, Damian Lillard never won a game beyond the second round of the NBA playoffs. Still hasn't, you know, and that sticks with him. 
Decide for yourself how much of that is his fault. Coming up, we'll talk to Maury Brown about MLB to PDX. Is it safe to be hopeful about the Portland Diamond Project's latest overture? They want to buy 164 acres in the suburbs. Is it safe to be hopeful? We'll talk about it with Forbes Magazine's Maury Brown next. Rob Manfred is the commissioner of Major League Baseball. I would like to see him set foot in the state of Oregon. I'd love to see, like, TV cameras from KGW and COIN and K2 kind of capturing him touring a uh, ballpark uh, site and MLB to PDX, uh, getting a whole bunch of momentum and letting everybody see that. Um, In the last 25 or 30 years, there have been a number of false starts. And, And granted, a lot of this is not the fault of Portland Diamond Project. There have been false starts. I can remember Mayor Vera Katz in City Hall saying, we really want baseball, and really kind of crowing about how important baseball would be and what a legacy move it would make. And remember the Expos were uh, were touring and looking at potential sites. And by the end of it, I think everybody kind of looked back and said, oh, we got used by MLB. Um, and so I guess one of the things that I have been wrestling with in the last uh, 24 hours is, is it okay to be hopeful about MLB to PDX? And I do think it's okay to be hopeful. I do think it is. I also think the Portland Diamond Project needs to know that there are a lot of people out there rolling their eyes who have an exhaustion with the effort, who really need to see action. They need to see the Diamond Project get control of a piece of land. They need to see the renderings. They need to see Manfred in the state of Oregon. They need to see those things maybe more so than other markets. And and it's why I want to bring our next guest onto the show because, you know, our next guest is a fantastic baseball writer who covers the game, understands the game, senior contributor at Forbes magazine, a Baseball Writers Association of America member, Maury Brown, Forbes magazine, joining us. Uh, Maury, how you doing, man? I'm great, John. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I get a lot of people who are asking me, probably like you today, hey, is it is it mm-hmm. is this real? Is it okay to hope? And, you know, let's just unpack this a little bit. You know, the Diamond Project says, you know, they'd like to buy 164 acres from the city of Portland. It's a big swing if they can do it. Um, you know, I'm not I I'm I'm all about somebody making big plans, but you know, what was your reaction when you heard that news yesterday? Well, I think I've looked at it as, you know, they've been awfully quiet for a long time. And so I do wonder about whether the timing of it and, you know, looking at what's been going on in Salt Lake City and the fact that for, you know, a while now we've been wondering whether we're coming close to looking at expansion talks. And I believe we really are. I mean, look, the A's are a mess right now in Las Vegas, and we don't know what's going to ultimately happen with that. And the Rays are still working through their things. But you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And when I talked to Rob Manford at the All-Star break last year, he said, yes, we see that. We're going to look at expansion at the opportune time. We'll go ahead and put together an expansion committee and go about that. So from that perspective, I looked at it and I said, well, you know, Terminal 2 on the waterfront didn't come through. Lloyd Center didn't come through. Talk about putting it across from Nike World Headquarters on Tektronix property didn't come through. Okay, this seems like a maybe a last gasp, you know, of trying to do something here. But look, John, I look at it this way. If they make this thing fly and they get that land, even if they can't get the ballpark done, 
they will have that land and will be a step above everybody else. They can develop it and do whatever they want with it at the end of the day, but they will allow them to be further along than others have. And I think that that is something for them to look at. Yeah, and I, I keep saying, look, you know, I was looking at 164 acres and I was going, gosh, where would that put this project? And it turns out, Maury, that would be the, the biggest stadium project in Major League Baseball history. Like, this would be a huge development. And if you're going to try to get Manfred's attention or the other owner's attention, I, I kind of think that's the way to do it. Like, that is a big swing. It is, and it is one of those things. If you look at what Craig Sheik and what the Diamond Project have looked at, and what the kind of the blueprint is for what the league has kind of wanted from other clubs, and what helps the owners is this idea of building the quote unquote the battery that the Braves have, which is a mixed use development around the ballpark. They get to the benefits of that without having to put that on the books of the Braves. And this would be what would happen in Portland. They would go ahead and they would develop a bunch of stuff around it. You could make it an entertainment district. You could put a major hotel there. You could put restaurants and shops, something that would be exciting even if you didn't have the ballpark. But if you put it around the ballpark, it's a major thing to go ahead and have. So, again, that's a a plus. That helps pay for the $2 billion ballpark. That helps pay for potentially a $2 billion expansion fee. I mean, it's a lot of money, John. And the only way you could do that is to have that. So I think that is a feather in their cap. If they can get that land, it would absolutely allow them to do that mixed-use development around it. Irrespective of the transportation issues and whatnot, it is something more than some other places. Certainly the Lloyd Center location would have been very difficult to do that. Yeah, and I I look at that, and I know a lot of people wanted the Lloyd Center because it helps with the city development, but 25 acres versus 164 acres – uh, it's a whole nother conversation. We're talking to Maury Brown, Forbes Magazine senior writer, Baseball Writers Association of America member. Maury, let's uh, talk a little bit about Salt Lake City. I kind of think Salt Lake City, you know, they're more evolved. They're further along, feel a little more sophisticated, a little more aggressive, pu- more public. But I kind of feel like they may have nudged the Diamond Project to do something. It, can you Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about Salt Lake City's effort? Well, it's the Miller family, and if those that remember, of course, what's what's happened with Larry Miller, you know, now he's passed away, but the Miller family that owned the Utah Jazz, look, that the Miller Foundation has considerable resources at their disposal. So somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 billion, $2 billion of that was the sale of the Jazz, or just shy of it. So look, that's that's quite a considerable sum that they know is in place. And then they have a political gamut right now that's really pretty remarkable. The Romney family and a bunch of private equity that goes around them. And again, from top to bottom on the political landscape, state, local, you know, regional, that, and it's all very public on their website. Now, again, with all of this stuff, it's very easy to put your name to something um, when it's conceptual. When push comes to shove and you actually have to put pen to paper, things can shift. But I would say this right now. I mean, one of the things that have always been a question mark around the Portland effort is where is the money? Who are these people? And that really has never come to light. You know, there's been seed money and they've been able to do stuff, but they have yet to be able to close on a deal, John, whether that was Terminal 2 and whether that was a deal with the city and the pandemic or whether the deal in Tektronics that didn't come through or the Lloyd Center. And at a certain point, you have to go, are, you know, do you have the money? Are you really serious about making this happen? And again, I would get back to this. This seems like a last gasp. I mean, maybe you can go out on the east side somewhere in Gresham or something, 
But this is, again, this would be the fourth effort that they've talked about now to try and make something happen. Going public with it seems to me that they're maybe moving this a little bit longer than they were before. But again, until it's, you know, a deal in hand, it's just talk right now. All right. I'm going to share something that I know that I've been kind of working on behind the scenes. And, you know, maybe you can put your head on this as well. Friday, they have a meeting with Mayor Ted Wheeler in City Hall Chambers. Diamond Project, Craig Cheeks there, along with his team. He brought with him the the primary investor. That primary investor, I'm told, is a tech person from the Bay Area in California. And uh, I have been given no other information than that. I have been unable to uh, identify who that person is. I'm not thinking it's Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, but... Um, I think you're right in that, like, I think the market needs to see some proof of performance. It needs to see more tangible things. And I don't I don't know if Salt Lake and other markets need that as much as Portland does because of the last 20, 30 years of all the talk. But how important would it be to have that billionaire investors identity out there? Well, it'd be huge. It really would. I mean, I think at this point it almost becomes a necessity because of what Salt Lake has done. At, at a certain stage, I mean, look, there, there's all kinds of um, political gyrations that go along with this in terms of how it happens, right? Um, there is, you know, how the markets lay out, what is, what is it in terms of what the league would want to see. But at the end of the day, John, it really boils down to one thing and one thing alone. Who's paying for it and, and do you have the money? It really does boil down to that. I mean, if we didn't, if we had that happen in – Let's in Oakland, or if you would have that happen, if you have that continue to happen in Tampa Bay, then those things tend to come around. Las Vegas's deal isn't a great one by any stretch of the imagination due to the media market. I mean, I actually think that helps Portland. If you're willing to go into Las Vegas, granted, there's a bunch of uh, tangible items around Vegas that make it, you know, interesting for Major League Baseball. But if you're going to move into a media market that small, Portland's would be larger. And so that, you know, was always an open question mark. How can you make the media market fly in Portland? Well, if you're going into Vegas, maybe the media market's not that big of a thing, or it's it's certainly not the biggest thing that you had before in front of you. So again, I think with all of this said, you get that land, whether they ultimately put a ballpark on it or not, you're holding that. And that is a development factor, and it's a huge leg up. They would have a leg up on everybody, and again, it would be a forcing function. At, when this all happens, John, there will be a bidding thing. There will be you know, dark horses, and there will be trying to gin each other up to make something happen. And Portland has been using that in the past. You alluded to that up front. I think that Portland, again, if they can come all the way through, then it's other markets that are ginning up Portland as opposed to Portland ginning other people up. Maury Brown, Forbes Magazine, senior contributor with us covers baseball uh maury um you mentioned you kind of alluded to the traffic i think a lot of people wondering you know the uh the property the red tail property already it's kind of a traffic nightmare with 217 and highway 26 and but i keep telling people and you tell me if i'm crazy like atlanta had a lot of the same questions when they were building in cobb county and what they ended up doing was they said, hey, we're going to invest in infrastructure. And they put money into the roads and the freeways. And and you know, and people uh, who attended the World Series later said, hey, that was amazing. Like, we thought it would be a nightmare, but it was great. Like, are these things that 
get dealt with after, or is that something you have to deal with up front? Is hey, we gotta we gotta ease concerns about the traffic. Well, I think up front, you you know, look, you get the land, and then you kind of deal with it later. I mean, if you look, you buy 164 acres, and you're going to develop it with whatever. There has to be a conversation around infrastructure. It would be very difficult, I think. First of all, there's no mass transit. Whether you know the West Line that runs out there, which is the small train that runs between the Beaverton Transit Center and Wilsonville. Wouldn't be enough. I mean, you could put shuttles in there. It's about a mile to walk. So obviously that would be difficult. You want to have something closer in. And, you know, Schultz Ferry would be a mess. Hall Boulevard would be a mess. I mean, they, it would be difficult. But there's no way you're dropping any substantive development. You know, it's a huge chunk of land. That and Alpen Rose Dairy in southwest Portland, is it, those being developed would be the largest developments in some time in the city. So again, both of those are in Southwest Portland, both of them around there, both of them have considerable infrastructure conversations that go around them. But if they can develop 194 acres around Alpen Rose Dairy with far more congestion problems, I live a stone's throw from it, then they should be able to do something there. Again, the difference of course is game days, you know, 30,000 people potentially, you know, plugging in during what would be at the tail end of rush hour, and that would be, you know, that would be tough. Maury Brown, Forbes Magazine. Maury, we'll get you back on to talk more about it, but I appreciate you joining us and kicking it around. John, thanks so much, man. You have yourself a great day. Thanks for having me. You too. All right, great stuff from Maury. And, and look, I think he's right that, you you know, you, you don't just say, hey, we're going to do a stadium, 164 acres, and eh, we don't really have a plan for the traffic. But, I already know, like you and I have both been on 217 or Highway 26 at 4 or 5, 6 o'clock, and we've gone, what is going on here? It's gridlock. And so maybe, maybe, let me just throw this out there because I'm one of these people that tries to, uh, in my own family, talk about, let's talk about solutions instead of problems. Um, maybe what comes of this is, you know, state of Oregon, City of Beaverton, City of Tigard, Washington County. Maybe they get their heads together and go, hey, we already have a problem. Let's solve this. Let's let's do something proactive. And, you know, on non-game days, maybe your commute is better because the ballpark's there. Not worse because the ballpark's there. Just spitballing. We'll keep you apprised of this, but the next move for the Diamond Project is to make the formal written offer. I'm told that should come within a week or two to City Hall, uh, Mayor Ted Wheeler, and the four city commissioners. It's four commissioners right now. That's five votes, the four commissioners plus the mayor. They need to have four of the five approve the sale. So some obstacles there, some potential for the city to politicize it. But I think Mayor Wheeler's got an opportunity to get a big win in an embattled tenure. He has an opportunity to be like, hey, uh, I'm part of the solution. This happened on my watch. This is going to be great for downtown Portland and the businesses and the restaurants that are going to obviously have, just like Atlanta, have people staying in downtown and then traveling out to the ballpark for a game. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to go to Alabama. Spanning the globe. We're going to go to Alabama where Joe Goodman of Alabama.com 
He writes a column. He covers Alabama and the SEC. We're going to check in. The Kalen DeBoer move, the arrival of DeBoer, the landscape of the departure of Nick Saban. We'll check in with Joe Goodman, who has his finger on the pulse of the SEC. And we'll do that in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, Steven's got the 5 at 5. But first, we've got a little bit of news. What's the big splash? Here we go. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the Seattle Seahawks have found themselves a head coach. Baltimore Ravens coordinator Mike McDonald is the new guy in Seattle. Uh, Tom Pelissaro of the NFL Network first reported it earlier this morning. Press conference introducing McDonald at Seahawks headquarters is expected to uh, be put together. Jody Allen, three weeks ago, said that uh, she and general manager John Schneider had a vision of a new and different version of the Seahawks. Well, this is new. This is different. McDonald's 36 years old. He'll be a first-time head coach. Exactly half as old as Pete Carroll. I couldn't help but think about the similarities, the parallels, between the Seattle Seahawks organization and your Trailblazers organization. I couldn't help it. First-time head coach who's never been a head coach, Chauncey Billups with the Blazers. First-time head coach, Mike McDonald. Granted, it's the NFL. It's a different animal. It's harder to be that bad in the NFL because of the parody. But a little bit of a course correction and definitely some parallels. Think about it. Seahawks organization traded away their star player, that quarterback Russell Wilson, a couple seasons ago. Blazers traded away Damian Lillard. Uh, McDonald becomes the second coach in Seahawks history who comes to Seattle with no head coaching experience at any level. Jack Patera was the other former Minnesota Vikings line coach who uh, led the Seahawks in their inaugural season of 1976 through 82. Uh, McDonald... Uh, with the Ravens was fantastic this season. First team in NFL history to have the best defense when it came to sacks, turnovers produced, and points allowed per game. They did a number on the 49ers. I'm sure Seahawks fans are going to hold that up as evidence that this is a great hire. Um, Kyle Hamilton, who's one of the Ravens who flourished in Baltimore, said that uh, that uh, Mike McDonald is, quote, super cerebral, end quote. Hamilton told the NFL Network that from the Pro Bowl, uh, the Seahawks have their guy. It's not Pete Carroll. It's kind of the anti-Pete Carroll, if you think about it, although both have a defensive background. Seahawks fans, tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Tell me what you think of the hire. I think it's really interesting. I think it's potentially um, uh, you know, a good move. But uh, K.J. Wright talking about it. Here's what he had to say about the new coach. The proof is in the pudding when it comes to his defense. We're talking a bad, bad defense this past year. Doing it with a bunch of just, I'm not going to say jags, but doing it with some guys that are not just high-profile type of defensive players. He did it with those group of guys. See his personality. See that he did it at the college level, at the pro level. He comes from a phenomenal culture, a phenomenal organization. The Izzy Newsoms, the Harbaugh's. 
And um, I believe that everyone in the city of Seattle would be in, in, on full board and full <clears throat> go with bringing them in. I went back and I looked at the Ravens' defense as it pertains to the salary cap. About $90 million in cap dollars on that Ravens' defense among the 22 players that they have on the defensive side of the ball. That's about 37% of the payroll. I compared that to the Seahawks, who uh, you know are a little bit different uh, – Take a little different approach, I guess. But the Seahawks have 120, uh, 107 million dollars in cap room, uh, you know, spent on the defense. About 43 percent of the roster. So McDonald doing better by with spending less money with the Ravens. Can he keep that up in Seattle? We'll find out. But as a Niner fan, I gotta tell you, this doesn't scare me. First time head coach doesn't scare me. In part because I'm distracted. The Niners are playing in the Super Bowl. And what are we now, like 10, 11 days away from the kickoff and uh, a whole bunch of developments on that front. But uh, Seattle's got their coach. Kind of feel like the Se- if you're a Seahawks fan, you'll support it. I also don't blame you if you feel like this was a dodgeball game and Mike McDonald was one of the last guys left on the playground and uh, the Seahawks picked him. I, th- I think it's a potentially a-, a good hire with some upside, and it moved really fast. Uh, apparently the Seahawks... Uh, met and interviewed uh, McDonald uh, for the first time yesterday, hired him today. So they must have seen something they liked. All right, coming up, we'll play some Punch It audio. We'll take a trip around the world of sports, and uh, we'll visit in the 5 o'clock hour with Joe Goodman, who covers the SEC in Alabama. Uh, A lot going on, and we haven't even talked about the Super Bowl yet. It's been a little shift in the point spread in the Super Bowl. We'll deal with that in the 4 o'clock hour as well. you got the bald-faced truth. I appreciate that you're here and that you're listening and that you're engaged. And I really enjoyed that first segment today. If you were part of it and you were here early, thank you. Super Bowl point spread opened at the Niners minus one. They're now minus two. What's going on, Steven? What's going on there? I think uh, people are going to starting to like the Niners a little bit here, John. At what point do the Chiefs become... Super attractive. I mean, three and a half, obviously. I think three, you're starting to think, all right. But anything over three, you get three in Patrick Mahomes, that seems pretty spicy. Although I will say, you know, under three, I, I, I'm I, leaning Niners right now. My initials, my initial thought was 49ers over the Chiefs. There are several Niners players on the roster right now who are on the roster for the last Super Bowl, including George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Nick Bosa. Eric Armstead, former Duck there, Fred Warner, Dre Greenlaw. Um, and, and if they didn't have that core group, and I heard Bosa talking about it. He was saying the last time they were there against the Chiefs, he was just, you know, he said he was a rookie. He was a fallen people around, didn't know what to expect. And if they didn't have that core group, I would – look more at the Chiefs' experience, and I'd say, gosh, that's that's awfully intimidating to see a team that has been around the Super Bowl multiple times. AFC title game, just camping there. They got a Winnebago. Patrick Mahomes in the parking lot of the AFC title game for like six, seven years. Um, if they didn't have that core group, I would go, this is going to be a big deal with the experience factor. And I think it was. In the AFC and the NFC championship games, I absolutely think that the fact that the Chiefs and the 49ers had been there before factored in those games. And, you know, sometimes that the old saying is, you know, when in theater is 
sometimes the stage is too big for the play. And as much as and as good as the Ravens looked, I kind of wonder in the wake of that game, was the stage too big for the play? You know, Lamar Jackson and the Ravens not getting over the hump. And certainly with the Detroit Lions, I was texting with a friend throughout the game, and I kept saying, you know, look, the Niners are way behind. They're playing terrible. The Lions look great. And in the second half, I said, gosh, if they can get within one score, I wonder how tight the Lions would get. I wonder if that would impact how the Lions make decisions. And I certainly think it factored in the game. And it mattered. So keep an eye on that. But I, I, you know, look, I saw the. There's so much going on around the Super Bowl. I saw that the uh, the uniforms, the Chiefs are going to wear red, Niners are going to wear white, same colors that they wore when they played each other last time in the Super Bowl. All that stuff's getting sorted out. But in the meantime, you know, the questions I have are more about, you know, how what's the health of Debo Samuel? What's the health of Christian McCaffrey, who landed on his head late in the game? Looked like he was concussed or had a neck or a shoulder thing. I don't know. You couldn't tell. And you know what are the health of those guys? And I'm sure the coaches are not going to say what it is, but those are the questions I have. It's not about kind of the extra Super Bowl stuff. But we'll keep you apprised there next week. We got a whole bunch of guests that will be joining us from the site of the Super Bowl, and we will have the flavor of the Super Bowl all over the show. But now we pivot to punch it audio. We got great sound today. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, we'll stay on the topic of the Super Bowl. Jeff Schwartz, former NFL offensive lineman, joined us yesterday right here on this show. I asked him who he's picking in Super Bowl 58. He said it's an easy decision. Here's the Schwartz. Punch it. So my, my option is uh, I get to choose between Brock Purdy and Patrick Mahomes. Those are my choices. Those are two quarterbacks in this game. Those are a pretty easy decision, right? Like, I, How often do we see the lesser talented quarterback win the Super Bowl? Nick Foles certainly did, right? But you get you know Tom Brady won, right, in the next year, and then... Patrick Mahomes won, and then it was Tom Brady again, and then it was Matthew Stafford, and then Patrick Mahomes. I mean, I, I don't really – not as can certainly win, but I'm not betting on Brock Purdy to win the Super Bowl. I mean, it comes down to quarterback play, right? And I mentioned some of the, the defensive stuff for the Niners. They're going to dial some pressures. Excuse me, for the Chiefs, I should say. I have the Chiefs winning this game. I, the underdogs, again, I, I get it. The Niners' power range is higher than Kansas City, but Chiefs are locked in. Yeah, look, I, I, I want to point out that – it takes a pretty good quarterback to get to the Super Bowl. Think about the quarterbacks in recent years who have played. Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts a year ago. Matthew Stafford and Joe Burrow two years ago. Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes three years ago. And, you know, and yes, it's a mismatch if it's Mahomes versus Purdy. It's going to be a mismatch. But it's Kyle Shanahan's job to make it not about that. And it's Kyle Shanahan's job to to make the other parts of the 49ers offense shine a little bit. Uh, I do think you can look back and you can say, all right, who are some quarterbacks that maybe weren't weren't viewed as blue-chip quarterbacks who won Super Bowls? Certainly Nick Foles over Tom Brady in 2017. Joe Flacco won it in 2012. 
Um, I, you know, but I, I, as I look at the list of QBs, you know, Brad Johnson won a Super Bowl with the Buccaneers against Rich Gannon. You know, there have been some quarterbacks historically, Jeff Hostetler, certainly Trent Dilfer. There have been some quarterbacks who were less than impressive who have won the game. But, yeah, if it comes down to Mahomes against Purdy and it's a skills competition or if that's what the game turns into, the Chiefs are going to walk off with the rings. Scoot Henderson. He's the guy the Blazers drafted and then turned to Damon and said, Scoot. Scoot Henderson talking about tonight's game against the Milwaukee Bucks. Damian Lillard making his return to Portland. Here's Scoot. Punch it. Man, it's going to be turned for sure. I think I think Dame going to um, – it's a homecoming game, and I think Dame is going to be happy to come here to play on his, his old court. And um, I think we're going to, you know, just try our best to, to try to shut that down. And I think we have the, a good enough defense to where, you know, we could just try to try to contain him and Giannis. Uh, I don't even know if Giannis is playing or not, but for most likely. Um, <clears throat> but we're just going to – do what we've been doing, and that's, like you said, having the ball popping, um, running our offense, and trying to lock up on defense. A lot of emotions around the return of Lillard to Portland, traded to the Milwaukee Bucks in the offseason, drafted with Portland. I'll say this first. Lillard showed a lot of loyalty, probably more loyalty than most NBA players show to the teams that drafted them. I also think it's kind of a shame that he didn't win more that the Blazers didn't have more success in his era, didn't put the players around him. I don't want to put it all on Damian Lillard because it wasn't all on Damian Lillard. John, do, not. You, do you agree with Scoot that the game's going to be turnt tonight? I think it's going to be turnt. <laughs> That's all I, I wanted you to I Can told you, you that. I said, I just want John to say turnt on the air. That's all I want. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be turnt. <laughs> <laughs> Can you use that in a sentence for me? Like if you were talking to your kids. How would you say, use the word turnt? Yeah, I'd be like, hey, Lincoln, wasn't that game turnt tonight? That, was a, that game was really turnt. Now, turnt means excited or energized, Yeah, right? like, like, tur- like turned up. That game's turned up. It also could mean that you're drunk. It, the game could get drunk, too. I don't know. I had a couple of beers, and I was turnt. <laughs> <laughs> I think that fits, too. Here's Damian Lillard talking about being back in Portland. By the way, if he uses the word turnt in this diatribe, all dollar values are double. I mean, I'm just excited, excited to play. Um, obviously, it was a, a great time. I, I loved the organization. I loved uh, everybody that I went to work with every day. And um, I think what made it the hardest is it wasn't a, it wasn't a broken relationship. So um, coming back is just, you know, being able to be here. I'm in a great situation. Um, you know, the reason it all came about in the first place was for a chance to win it all. We couldn't be at that place at the same time. Uh, so I, I come back with love, and, you know, I'm excited to be back in the Motor Center. I played uh, so many games that I recognize fans' faces, you know, from the court. So seeing their faces, being back in the building, being back um, home, uh, I'm excited to play the game, and I'm going you know, to play the game free. So, you know, we're here to win a game, and that's it. Did he say he's playing for free tonight? Oh, no, he's, he's going playing, to play playing free. free. All right. I thought he was going to play for free. No, it's Dame Dalla, John. <laughs> um, look, I think it's going to be interesting to see, not the ovation, but how he plays. Does he come out tonight trying to 
score 50, 60, 70, like we've seen players in recent weeks do? Or does he come out tonight and, and just do a very respectful 27 points and tip his cap? And, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see how that time is spent tonight. By the way, Lillard talked about the time he spent in Portland. How does he view the seasons that he spent in a Blazers uniform? Punch it. Priceless. Because you just, I mean, the way it came together is just, you know, it's, it's something that you just can't forget. You know, something you just don't let go of easily. It's not something that, that dies. You know, you can't, you couldn't have scripted it any better. Um, coming out of college, playing in the big sky, Portland State was like my favorite team to go play on the road against because it was like the only actual city in our, our conference. Um, my best friends out of high school went to school in Portland. It's close to home. Um, you know, just the kind of city that it is, you know, it was a, a perfect fit for me. If I'm Portland State men's basketball coach Jace Coburn, I'm grabbing that clip and I am sending it to all my recruits. Like, you know, there's an angle there for Portland State, is there not? But, look, I, I understand why Lillard is waxing nostalgic about his time in Portland. He, in his era has become one of the highest paid players in the NBA. He's making an average of $44 million a season. He's earned already $233 million in his career. This was a two-star high school recruit. He had two stars. 24-7 gave Damian Lillard two stars. He now will have, I think this season will be his ninth All-Star game. That's a success story. That's a win. For a kid who grew up going, I'm overlooked. Nobody's, you know, who do, who nobody can see me. His college choices came down to Weber State, St. Mary's, San Diego State. Went to Weber State. The rest is history. I mentioned the hire of Mike McDonald, Ravens defensive coordinator. Ian Rappaport talking about Mike McDonald interviewing. This came from yesterday. And I'm going to take you through the whirlwind 24 hours that resulted in the Seahawks having a new coach. Here's Rappaport with the initial report. Punch it. Yeah, and, and the Mike McDonald one is fascinating to me because, first of all, I've talked to a couple teams who interviewed him. It sounds like he has been really dynamic in some of these interviews. I had one uh, person involved with one of the head coach searches who said this was the best interview we had by far. He is young. He is bright. Sort of the defensive Sean McVay is how he was described to me. And the fact that Seattle was willing to wait until after the Super Bowl to talk to him gives me Shane Steichen vibes. That makes me think he is a really, really strong candidate in, in Seattle. We will see where it goes today, but certainly that is one to watch. And here we are 24 hours later, McDonald being named the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. I can't help but think about whether this is a correction or an answer that the Seahawks are coming up with for the dominance of the 49ers in that division, Sean McVay being in that division, offensive football being played in that division, and they're going with a defensive guy. Robert Griffin III thinks it's a great hire. Punch it. McDonald is a, a great hire. Um, they're going to play defense at the highest level, uh, bringing back that Legion of Boom type of defense. Uh, where it's going to be very multiple, uh, and I think for the Sea, you know what? Uh, what do they call the twelves? Yeah. Uh, for the Seahawks, I mean, my God, 
I don't think they could have got a better hire. I know some of them wanted Dan Quinn, but what they're getting at Mike McDonald is a guy that's going to know how to build a roster, know how to build a defense, and allow his quarterback to go out there and do what he does best. Okay. I still think the Seahawks need players. Not sold that they've got the quarterback that is capable of taking them deep into the playoffs. We shall see. Do you do you think it's a big deal that it's a defensive coach rather than an offensive coach as your head hire? Because I feel like nowadays we all get really excited about the offense, like the young offensive head coach, but the young defensive coach we don't necessarily get as excited. Is that a big deal? You think in the NFL? I think that sometimes you hire a coach as an answer. And Seattle's in a division that has been a really offensive division with the Niners, the Rams, and the Cardinals to some extent. Not this season, but the Cardinals have had some offensive-minded uh, focus. And and so I I think it's it kind of stays in the genre of Pete Carroll. And, and for that reason, I think it's interesting. Is this the guy they wanted all along? Maybe. But I also am going, you still need Jimmys and Joes to win. And I think of that division, you, you're going to have to score. But the defense, the Seattle Seahawks defense this year was not great. I mean, they, they allowed you know 100 more points than the 49ers did. That wasn't a great defense, and it wasn't like a prototypical Pete Carroll defense. Chris Sims talking about the 49ers. I don't think the 49ers defense was that great this season, not compared to some other years. Chris Sims says he thinks the defense could be a problem. Punch it. I, the 49ers defense is just not the same, right? You've heard me been saying that the last few weeks. It's not yeah. as good as years past. It's not even as close as years past, right? Right. I mean, the first half, there's a. I don't even know what the 49ers were doing. I, I mean, you guys got people open everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. And it's not just like, oh, it's like he's open by a step. It's like he's nobody's in the screen. Or there's like nobody within five yards. I mean, they didn't challenge the Lions. It's kind of like they came out and they're like, let's see how they attack us. Let's play it soft. And so, a little bit like we talk about Baltimore and the Chiefs, right? Came out that way. And literally, the, the Lions were just like, we'll do whatever we want. This is great. Kind of That's kind of the look and the feel that it had. Niners run defense did not look good, and that set everything else up for the Detroit Lions. I will say this, though. I was talking about this with my dad. You know, he was saying, gosh, they just haven't played well. And he's right. Look, you know, you watch them against the Packers, it was about a C-minus game for the Niners. You watch them against the Lions, maybe a C, maybe, because the second half they were better. But it was like a D, D-minus, F in the first half. Like, it was bad. It, but they haven't played a good game, and yet they are in the Super Bowl. And so are you supposed to feel good about that or bad about that? I don't know. But I know that if they're not better against Patrick Mahomes, they're going to get beat, and they're gonna, and it's not going to be like a three-point loss. Well, that was the knock on Shanahan was that he – I believe it's that was he never had a fourth-quarter comeback until the, the game against the Packers, and Brock Purdy let him back, and then he had two in a row. So now it's – you know, usually they get out to good starts and then they can run the ball to death with Christian McCaffrey and just, you know, just suffocate the defense where, you know, the last two games they haven't had to do that. They had to win differently. So I, it is going to be interesting to see how that 49er defense steps up because if they give up some points early, John, I don't know if the 49ers have enough against that Chiefs defense to make another comeback to win yeah. the game. You can't put yourself in that position against a really good team and especially a team that's got Patrick Mahomes. 
They cannot get down 17 points to the Chiefs. It, it'll, it'll get ugly fast, uglier fast. Jerry Jones, Cowboys owner, general manager, and resident problem, says that the Cowboys are, are going to be all in next season. See, I, I love this. I'm going to say this before this clip even plays. Like, they weren't all in last year, two years ago. Now they're going all in, says Jerry Jones. Punch it. I would anticipate with looking ahead at our key contracts that we'd like to address, we'll be all in. I would anticipate we'll be all in at the end of this year. So when you say, is there any thought, uh, I think we'll strain our, uh, we'll, we'll push the hell out of it. You got to push it. They're going for it. Pedal to the metal, so to speak. They're going to be turnt. <laughs> I think that worked perfectly, yeah. Jeff Saturday finally talking about the Steelers. Steelers have hired Arthur Smith as their offensive coordinator, in case you missed it. Jeff Saturday says, you know who would be a good fit for that new offensive coordinator? Russell Wilson. Punch it. Russell Wilson for Arthur Smith would be would be the best fit. And because he wants to play under center, he wants play action, he's a veteran quarterback, all the different things, and I get the whole zone read thing, but Arthur Smith can create a run game no matter what. He does as good as anybody in getting that created. So if you're going to talk about what Russell Wilson can do extremely well, and you have a vet guy in there who's won a bunch of games. I know people hate him. Yep. Dude wins a bunch of freaking games. So, you, you know, you're bringing somebody in there who brings some stability to an organization. And by the way, you got to write that check, Rooney, if you're talking all that noise. Yeah, I heard this, I think, last offseason when people were saying, you know it would be perfect for Sean Payton? Russell Wilson. He'll, that, that, you know, Payton's going to fix him. Well, Payton is now fixing the team, and it looks like uh, fixing to get rid of, uh, of uh, Russell Wilson. So best-case scenario, you've got $72 million in salary over the next three years. The Broncos are going to have a hard time unloading that. So uh, you're going to have to restructure his deal, or you're going to have to trade him. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting to see what they do. I expect that the Browns, or excuse me, the Broncos are going to uh, pick a quarterback in the draft. Do you think Russell Wilson has any more left in the tank, though? I think situationally, I don't see a full NFL season with him being like the guy for the whole season and and I just I can't see that. I like he he put up decent stats but you watch the games it's like he's just not being effective. I, I don't know. I kind of think he's washed up. I, I I wouldn't take the risk on him. Here's a here's a wild scenario and somebody I've thought about. Yeah, you know, I I'm watching Brock Purdy and I got to be honest. I watched him in the NFC Championship game and it was really the first time I kind of saw it. I kind of think that Brock Purdy's success in the NFL is beneficial to a guy like Bo Nix at Oregon. I think it gives NFL general managers and NFL teams a chance to go, you know what, what about a guy like Brock Purdy started 40-plus games at Iowa State, got a lot of experience, got to the NFL, was thrown into the fire as a you know rookie, last guy you know picked in the draft, and, and did all right. Bo Nix has got... 60 starts, has a little mobility, very accurate like Purdy is. I kind of think that like like Bo Nix might be a nice Denver Bronco. I could see him in that Sean Payton offense 
And, you know, everybody's saying, well, what about the Tulane quarterback? Denver could do better. I kind of think you could do you could do a lot worse than using your early draft picks to grab offensive linemen, defensive tackles, other position needs, and then grab Bo Nix not in the first round. I think, you know, if there's any kind of formula the 49ers are laying out with the success they've had with Brock Purdy, it's that you may not need to go and get that guy early and high in the draft if you can get somebody very serviceable and competent and experienced and poised a little bit later. And Bo Nix is at the Senior Bowl right now at practices. Senior Bowl is Saturday, so uh, maybe it's something to take a look at to see you know, how he's throwing the football, how, how the scouts are talking about him. I'm kind of thinking, you know, he's not a first-round guy. The, the, not, there's, been, might, there's been some talks, though, John, that he may sneak into the first round. I I would be a little surprised by that. But, you know, if, if he does sneak into the first round, good for him because it means he's getting picked, you know, late in the first round by a team that, you know, has a decent core around him. But Bo Nix is going to be 24 years old when he's drafted. He played in 61 games over five years as a starter. I... I kind of like I was down on him entering this year and I was kind of going I don't think he's going to start in the NFL. I don't think he could be a starter for a team. I'm watching Brock Purdy and I'm going, "Well, why can't Bo Nix be a starter in the NFL?" So I'm assuming you like Penix more than Bo Nix cuz Penix Wait, is yeah, about the same I, age. Yeah. Yes. But I'm looking at, you know, Bo Nix is 6'2", 215. Like he's kind of on he's just big enough. You know, he's not Justin Herbert, he's not Josh Allen. He's not that kind of quarterback. But is he Brock Purdy? Like, I think Bo Nix in the right system, Sean Payton in the Denver Broncos, I think he'd be a, I think he'd be a smashing success when it doesn't have to be all about him. That's a, that's a scenario you want to be in if you're Bo Nix. All right, coming up, we'll talk more about tonight's Damian Lillard Blazers reunion. Uh, DraftKings offering a special bet on it. To, what was it? Twenty five and a half points. Yeah, it was right? uh, Dame to score. Dame to score twenty five and the Bucks to win, and that was Ooh. the uh, was a little parlay action for I think plus a hundred, maybe plus one fifty, plus one fifty. Wow! All right, we'll talk about that. Plus, what we learned yesterday about uh, Oregon State's offense under Ryan Gunderson. I'll talk about that coming up. I'm waiting on a rant today on Instagram. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that I, I went on a rant where I just started talking about. You know, I, I was really surprised yesterday. When the Portland Diamond Project news broke, and granted, nobody was happy with me yesterday. Nobody, the city of Portland, Mayor Wheeler's office, not happy that I broke the news that the Portland Diamond Project was pivoting from the Lloyd Center plan to pivot towards the Red Tail Golf Course location. Um, 125 acres or excuse me, 25 acres at the Lloyd Center, 164 acres at Red Tail. Not difficult to understand why trying to put a 16- or 17-acre ballpark on 25 acres is really a challenge. But I think the mayor's office wanted to plant that story with their preferred news outlets. And I get it. There's a game that gets played there. Let them play it. I'm just not... Uh, you know, I don't bring a ball and a glove when I'm doing this stuff. So I'm reporting what I know to be true. I work for you. I am here for you, not them. So they weren't happy. I don't think the Diamond Project was happy with me either. They had to put out a statement yesterday after I wrote the piece. Uh, 
saying, yes, it's true, they have pivoted towards the Red Tail Golf Course Center. I just had sources who were telling me, hey, there was a big meeting Friday. Um, you know, the Diamond Project let the mayor's office know that there's uh, they are moving in a different direction. And by the way, the Diamond Project had one of their principal investors in the room. It is a tech person from Silicon Valley, I'm told, that is a billionaire. And so the money person was in the room. And it may just be, you know, like, I can see this stuff from 20,000 feet. To me, this is a win for Mayor Ted Wheeler. It's a win no matter what. If baseball happens, if a stadium or a development project happens and the city of Portland owns the land, uh, and it happened on his watch, put it on his legacy. Put it in the win column on his legacy. And it's a... It's a rocky legacy, right? We all know that, you know, you can, we can see the graffiti. We can see the issues with homelessness. We can see the issues during the pandemic downtown. Like, it's been a rocky ride for the mayor. And so this could be a win, okay? I see it as a win. It's a great victory if it happens. If it even starts to get off the ground, it's a win for Mayor Wheeler. I also think it's a win for the Diamond Project. If they can get this thing off the ground and they can get the commissioner of Major League Baseball to Oregon to come tour the site and they can come up with renderings and they can buy the 164 acres from the city of Portland for 50 or $55 million or whatever that number is, it's going to be a huge win. This is a giant win, massive win. Okay, so everybody's winning and yet they're all mad at me because they didn't want it out there yet, I guess, but too bad. I This is what I do. This is my job. So here's the other piece. I was really a little bit like the most biggest surprise to me at all was kind of the reaction of the market. I just saw a lot of negativity yesterday when the Diamond Project finally issued their statement about an hour and a half after I had posted my column at johnconzano.com. The Diamond Project came out and said, yes, it's true. We can confirm this. Boom. We're pivoting to Red Tail. Great. And then the reaction publicly was what? Oh, my gosh, the traffic. Oh, my gosh, there's ranch-style houses that are right near the golf course. Oh, my goodness, this will never work. Oh, it's never happening. And I don't blame you, I guess, for feeling that way if you've lived here 25 or 30 years. Because if you have, what have you been told? I remember Portland Mayor Vera Katz giving a speech in which she talked about you know, Major League Baseball potentially coming to the state of Oregon and coming to Portland, and she was saying, we really want baseball. And the Expos were touring the post office site downtown. Remember that? And then, you know, baseball went to Washington, D.C. instead of Portland. And that makes sense. If you have your choice of putting a sports franchise in the nation's capital or in Portland, you're going to Washington, D.C. But then came... Uh, a whole bunch of false starts with different groups as it pertained to the A's and the Rays and baseball this and baseball that. And, you know, there were a lot of head fakes in there. And so I guess I guess I understand why people would be a little skeptical. I went on a rant about this on Instagram and TikTok. You might say I was turnt. Did I use that right? I was fired up and energized talking about, you know, the negativity that was out there. Now, I think that the Diamond Project's got to pay attention to that. 
I think it's going to be super important for Craig Cheek, who is the founder and the president of the Portland Diamond Project, and his team to pay attention to what has happened in the last 24 hours. Because if you are paying attention, you know that, hey, people are saying it's never going to happen. I've heard this before. I'm skeptical. All of this other stuff. I kind of feel like Portland, and we've known this for some time, and the state of Oregon are different than other places. Just different. People in Salt Lake City, when when the Miller family said, we'd like to bring Major League Baseball here, they went, cool, let's do it. And they believe, because they saw the Miller family and have watched for years, as the Miller family has done big things in Salt Lake City and across Utah. And so I think the Diamond Project is playing a little bit different game here. I think they've got to come out, and I think they've got to be super transparent. I think they need to let the public see them in action. You can't go dormant. You can't go into a coma for six months like they just did and just disappear. You can't go too quiet. I think they got to be noisy. I think they've got to be transparent. I think they, when they present that written offer to the city commissioners and the mayor, Ted Wheeler, um, you know, I think they need to kind of make a public show of it. Hey, our written offer is in, and the mayor's office and the city commissioners are doing their diligence. And, and I think when they close the deal, they've got to celebrate it. And I think when Commissioner Rob Manfred, if he says, hey, I will come to Portland and see your site, I think you need to make a big deal about it. They need to call every TV station in the land and say, come see the commissioner of baseball walk across the golf course and bring this radio show over there and put Rob Manfred on this show and try to make a big deal about it and allow it to kind of be what it could all it can be because, you know, Manfred's here. Get him here. on the show. Boom, put him on this show. And let people see it in action. And, and that's how I think you're going to rebuild trust. And the broken trust is not all on the Portland Diamond Project. The broken trust is on the Expos fiasco, getting used multiple times by different teams, every head fake that this market has had with NHL or Major League Baseball or a tractor pull. Um, you've got you've to know that trust was broken. And the way to rebuild trust is what? How? consistent, transparent behavior and action. And the Diamond Projects has got to do that. And Salt Lake City doesn't. And maybe it's a little bit of a disadvantage or a headache for the Diamond Project, but they've got to do it. I think yesterday, after I wrote the piece, I think it was 100% the right move for them to issue a statement and go public with it. You know, I posted it right before the show yesterday. Boom, within an hour, they had a statement out. And I was like, you know what? That's a good move by them instead of coming out with a denial or whatnot. All right, coming up, we'll talk about Oregon State under Ryan Gunderson, plus some thoughts on the Super Bowl. The 5 at 5 is still ahead, and we'll go to Alabama in the 5 o'clock hour. Joe Goodman, columnist at AL.com, Alabama.com, will be joining us to talk about the arrival of Kalen DeBoer, the landscape in the SEC. What was Nick Saban running from? Was he running? All of that's still ahead. That music is kind of turnt, isn't it? Ryan Gunderson on yesterday's show had a couple of interesting things that he said. Kind of like how that interview came together. For uh, people who don't know who were listening yesterday in the 5 o'clock hour, Ryan Gunderson joined us, uh, the former Oregon State quarterback, who went off 
to work at Nebraska and then San Jose State and then UCLA under Chip Kelly and is now uh, the offensive coordinator and play caller at Oregon State under Trent Bray. Um, he talked about why it was meaningful to to come home. And I think it's a really good story. I mean, Gunderson's a really good story. I'm really interested to see how that offense works and looks and he talked about that. It's not something I ever necessarily, uh, you know, expected to happen, but um, I'm really excited. My family's really excited, and uh, it's just kind of an opportunity. Obviously, there's been, you know, what's happened over the last two years in college football, um, but it's kind of an opportunity to run to the fight and, and get back into it and, and fight for something you believe in and something you love and um, do it with a lot of people that I care about and know and um, really, I'm excited to work with. I like that. Run to the fight. If you think about it, that's kind of the mentality you need if you're Oregon State or Washington State. And and somebody asked me the other day. I had you know I do a weekly mailbag at johnconzano.com and I ask I answer questions and but somebody asked me about um, the president at Oregon State, Jayathi Murthy. She is the president at Oregon State, and Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State. And they were like, you know. How do you feel or how detrimental would it be if there was a loss of leadership at Oregon State or Washington State right now amid this fight, same fight that Ryan Gunderson's talking about, Oregon State, Washington State trying to get footing. And to that point, it really got me thinking, and that's why I love the, the mailbag sometimes. It gets me thinking about things I never thought about, and I, and I kind of was looking at the blend of those two university presidents. At Oregon State, you've got Jayathi Murthy, who was born in India, who at age 13, 14, 15, said, I want to go to this prestigious engineering academy in India that almost is exclusively male. And they just, behind the times, kind of like the movie Hidden Figures about the women at NASA who helped put a man on the moon. You know, there's not a bathroom in the, in the facility. There's not a women's restroom because they only had men working in there. Jayathi Murthy told me that they she had to go to the library and across campus to use the bathroom at this engineering academy. And they told her when she was admitted as a student that she could go to school there, but she should expect that there wouldn't be a job for her after graduation. Can you think about how like demoralizing and insulting that would be as a person who is like just fighting for your own existence in your own career trajectory to be told before you even start before you have taken a class hey you can go to school here but you you should you're not going to get a job when you graduate because the companies in india don't hire women and she said okay whatever went to the school graduated with a degree in engineering and then as now through the course of her post graduate uh, career not only found a job she's the bleeping president at Oregon State coming to Oregon State from UCLA it's kind of a win and it kind of tells you something about the president at Oregon State it tells you something about her makeup her metal and I don't mean it like knock on metal I mean it like she's got some resilience she's got some uh, fight in her and I was told when Oregon State and Washington State were locked up in this ugly litigation with the ten departing schools, 
One of the ter- attorneys involved told me, as the settlement was coming down the pipeline, that Oregon State's president deserved a big public high five because there were multiple opportunities when the 10 departing schools tried to leverage and scare Oregon State and Washington State into settling. That's what happens in a negotiation. And she continually said, I'm not leaving with anything but a win. And the the attorney told me, you really need to examine the role of Jagathi in that settlement because she was fighting. And it didn't surprise me knowing her story. She wanted a W. So she's running towards the fight. Oregon State's got to keep her. But when you pair her with a sidekick, and we all know every great duo in history, you know, it's not like Batman and Batman, right? That doesn't work. We've seen it in the NBA. It doesn't work. You have to have Batman and Robin. You know, you have to have a sidekick. And and you need to complement each other. Every duo has that. Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Every There's a complementary relationship that happens. And it's really interesting to kind of look at Jayathi Murthy and Kirk Schultz, the two presidents, Oregon State and Washington State, and you frame it with Gunderson's comment about, you know, he's running towards the fight, fighting for something in this changing landscape. Kirk Schultz, while he is not maybe the fighter that Jayathi Murthy is Oregon State, he's a different animal. He is a rare university president that understands sports, leans into it, heavily involved, has always been heavily involved, is on some executive committees, and in fact, He's got, um, right now, the college football playoff uh, automatic bid in his pocket. And, you know, it's a it's a, an asset to that conference now, the two-member conference, to have sort of the combination of the scrapper that is Jayothi Murthy at Oregon State and the sports person that is Kirk Schultz at Washington State. Now, the first time I had Jayothi Murthy on the show, you may recall, I don't know if you were here listening, you may recall, she said, I don't know anything about college football. She said, I know cricket. And I went, uh-oh, Oregon State's in trouble. But what I found out later was she didn't need to know football. She had Kirk Schultz. He knew football. He knew the American collegiate sports scene better than any president in the conference. And when you combine the fight of Murthy and the expertise of Schultz, you actually have something when, you know, if you put those things on their own, they might not work. Like, you need an understanding of collegiate athletics. You need a little bit of metal, a little bit of resilience when you're in a fight and you're running towards the fight like Ryan Gunderson said. I love that interview yesterday. If you missed it, grab the podcast of it and listen to it because you're watching and hearing and seeing a story that has never occurred before in college football history. Two schools have been left behind. They are going to make a go of it. That's pretty interesting. Maybe they make a movie about it 100 years from now. But here's Ryan Gunderson. I asked him, is it too early to evaluate your quarterbacks? He threw a little joke in there. Is it too early to evaluate your quarterback room? Yes. So no more questions on him. No. I <laughs> I know what they can do just off of the film that I've seen. Um, you know, varying levels of experience 
Uh, I think we have some, you know, the way that it's been explained to me in the past, there's some different spices in the cabinet. There's, mm-hmm. there's some different flavors, some guys that play with different styles, and that's fine. Um, we've got really smart guys in the room, really good coaches, and I think we can blend it to who the quarterback is that gives us the best chance to, to win. There you go. No more questions. Leave it at that. Love that interview yesterday with Ryan Gunnerson. We'll get him back on. But I just think it's interesting. He kind of said, you know, he's running towards the fight. Because, you know, it would have been really easy for Ryan Gunnerson to stay at UCLA, work under Chip Kelly, wait for the first opportunity in the Power Four conference. Been really interest- easy for Trent Bray, the now head coach at Oregon State, to go with Jonathan Smith to Michigan State. Just take, you know, I'll be the D coordinator there. Smith would have had him in a heartbeat. It had been really easy for those things to happen. They didn't happen. How about, you know, how about Keith Hayward? The You know, he's working in the NFL, and he gets the call from Trent Bray. Want to come back to Oregon State? been really easy for Keith Hayward to go, oh, man, that seems like that would be really challenging. I would like to stay in the NFL with the Raiders because it's an easier thing. But that whole thing about running towards the fight, man, that really that really caught me yesterday. It's not something I ever necessarily uh, you know expected to happen, but um, I'm really excited. My family's really excited, and uh, it's just kind of an opportunity. Obviously, there's been you know what's happened over the last two years in college football, um, but it's kind of an opportunity to run to the fight and, and get back into it and, and fight for something you believe in and something you love and. Um, do it with a lot of people that I care about and know and um, really am excited to work with. Kind of cool. They'll make a movie about it someday, and we'll see uh, We'll see what happens with his next two seasons. All right, coming up, we got the five at five. Steven's going to pepper me. Five greatest stories, five biggest stories going on. I'll give my take on each of them. Then after that, Joe Goodman of Alabama.com will be joining us from Alabama where they've got a new head football coach in Kalen DeBoer. How is uh, life without Nick Saban going for the Tide? How has DeBoer looked, sounded, acted? How has he been received by Alabama fans? You know, Alabama fans can be a little bit unhinged. We know that. We know that, you know, Alabama fans, they, it's not quite as grounded as you and I. But, uh, you know, if you're an unhinged Alabama fan, I apologize to you. But, uh, you know, we'll talk with, uh, with Joe Goodman about how that's going coming up. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. Leave it here for the happy hour. It's coming up next. I had a uh, writer who covers the SEC on this radio show a couple years ago, and I, I said, what's the difference between Pac-12 fans and Big Ten fans and SEC fans? And, and the person said, well, the... Uh, the SEC fans unhinged. <laughs> unhinged. We'll find out more about that in uh, this hour as Joe Goodman will be joining us from the SEC footprint. Alabama fans, are they a little nuttier than other fans? We will find out. I think they are. I think part of it is ingrained in the culture of the fan base. I think part of it is stuck in the idea that there's, you know, this is generational. I think also that 
there's an identity that fans in the SEC footprint attach with their programs. And I think sometimes, uh, sometimes those callers go a little bananas. And I think uh, sometimes they get a little they get a little crazy. I also think that um, I want to play a little bit of that because I think sometimes the uh, SEC fan uh, can be fun to listen to. Uh, for example, and uh, people may remember we've played this call over the years, and certainly we have heard. Bama fans over the years uh, emulate this call, but uh, this was a hey, call. Hey, Turd, yeah. you you are just – I don't even have a name for you anymore except Cal Turd. How dare you say that about Alabama? They lose the game. They lose the game, and they lost it to a good team. The team beat Alabama. But how can you say after the dynasty took all these years, all these decades – one game is going to mean that Saban's dynasty is over. You're out of your freaking mind, Cowturd. You need to go back to whatever the hell you was doing before you got on the radio. And how dare you call me out? You call me out, you're going to get me back. You hear me, you puck? How dare you? I don't understand the way you act towards... It's it's Bama. That's what it is. It's Bama. You don't hate any team in this nation except for Bama. And you know why? Because they're better than what you've got. Nick Saban is a better man than you are. You could never coach because you don't have a bit of coaching in your body. You have nothing but to sit there and insult and damn and, and, and just carry on about everybody that's doing something different than you. You're jealous. That's the bottom line. You're jealous. And Bama's coming back. Bama has not lost. The dynasty is not over. Do you hear me, Countered? Bama's dynasty has just begun. Kiss my butt. Roll Tide. Little Roll Tide at the end. So uh, decide for yourself, are Alabama fans less, are they more unhinged than other fan bases? That will be a topic of conversation uh, coming up here a little bit later in the 5 o'clock hour. Now, though, we turn to the 5 at 5. Steven's got the five biggest stories in sports. The 5 at 5. Number 1. What do you got, Steven? Well, Dame is officially at the Moda Center, John. He arrived. Game tonight, Bucks versus the Blazers. Uh, the scoring line for Dame. Over under 26.5 points. It started out 25.5, up to 26.5. Spread in the game. Bucks are 10.5 point favorites in this one. Uh, but Dame has spoken to the media before the game. Uh, said some interesting things. Uh, you know, Sean Hyken put out that uh, Dame said, quote, this is always how I felt my career would end, end quote, and potentially returning to the Blazers. Um, and it also was one of those things where Dame said that he, you know, he, he said they both places, him and the Blazers ended up and getting what they wanted out of it, and that he has not spoken to Joe Cronin since the trade. So uh, still a little, I think, hard feelings between Dame and Joe Cronin there. But Dame and the Bucks in town taking on the Blazers. I just don't know why he would be upset at Joe Cronin. I think, you know, Joe Cronin to me is, he hasn't made any of these decisions that set the Blazers on the path to part ways with Damian Lillard. It's Jody Allen. It's Burt Colt. And to some extent, it's Neil Olshay, Joe Cronin's predecessor as the general manager that failed to build around Damian Lillard. Why? Are you mad at Joe Cronin for 
being the guy who's in the seat. Like, Joe Cronin's not making that decision. He's calling upstairs. He's talking to Burt in in particular. And and they're not trading Damian Lillard unless Burt Cold and Jody Allen are saying it's time to part ways with Lillard. Joe, go get this done. I've talked to other GMs in the league. They say Joe's the guy working the phones. He's not actually making the decisions. But I think Damian Lillard probably got used to seeing his general manager, his guy, Neil Olshay, protect him. He's no longer protecting him. Number two. Seahawks got their guy, Baltimore Ravens defensive coordinator Mike McDonald. And the Seahawks agreed to a deal to make them their next head coach for Seattle. A six-year deal for the 36-year-old. It becomes the youngest NFL head coach right now. Uh, he brings the Seattle reputation one of the league's brightest defensive minds. Led the Ravens to the number one uh, defense in points allowed, sacks, and takeaways this past season. It was his second season as Baltimore's coordinator. Uh, as you played earlier, the sound Ian Rapport, he said, basically, you know, think of him as a uh, defensive Sean McVay. That's the personality that he has. Uh, Seahawks, John, they're going to go from the oldest head coach in Pete Carroll. Now they got the youngest head coach in Mike McDonald. So going uh, complete 180 there up in Seattle with the age of a coach. Yeah, you see this a lot. You see anytime there's a hire in sports, you know, ask yourself this the next time any team parts ways with a coach. Ask yourself, what is the 180 degrees correction from said coach? And in the case of Pete Carroll, yeah, you hold up, you know, Mike McDonald is like, he's the antithesis of Pete Carroll. And that often happens. You know, Arizona State, what did they have? They had Herm Edwards, older coach, uh, NFL background. What's the pivot? Kenny Dillingham, young coach, college background. You know, that those are the kinds of things that you see. Mario Cristobal, offensive lineman, offensive guy, recruiter. What's the pivot? Dan Lanning, defensive guy. There's always a pivot, and there's usually a pivot in a completely different direction. Terry Stotts, Blazers coach, he's fired. Who's he replaced with? Not another older guy. No, they went with a first-time, first-year head coach in Chauncey Billups. This is the correction by the Seahawks, who obviously weren't happy with what happened in the last year, year and a half in Seattle under under Pete Carroll. Here's K.J. Wright talking about the hire of McDonald. The proof is in the pudding when it comes to his, his defense. We're talking a bad, bad defense this past year. Doing it with a bunch of just, I'm not going to say jags, but doing it with some guys that are not just high-profile type of defensive players. He did it with those group of guys. See his personality. See that he did it at the college level, at the pro level. He comes from a phenomenal culture, a phenomenal organization. The Izzy Newsoms, the Harbaugh's, and um, I believe that everyone in the city of Seattle would be in, in, on full board and full <clears throat> go with bringing them in. There it is. But can he get the players? Did was it a case of the right players in Baltimore, or is it the right coach? Number three. What do you got? Well, speaking of defensive coordinators, the Packers they needed a new one, and they got Boston College head coach Jeff Halfley who is going to be the new Packers D coordinator. So Halfley going from head coach at Boston College to D coordinator in the NFL. Uh, Halfley been successful at Boston College, led him to bowl eligibility three of his first four seasons. But the interesting part about this, John, there are some sources and some reasons why Halfley took this job. Um, he, 
the, this was from a source that told ESPN. It said, "quote He wants to go. He wants to coach football again in a league that is all about football. Yeah. College coaching has become fundraising, NIL, and recruiting your own team and transfers. There's no time to coach your football team anymore." End quote. Uh, so it seems like Halfley, only 44 years old, not old, not an old guy, young guy. We talked about this. Like maybe college football, college coaches need to be a younger game. He's one of the younger coaches. Uh, we've seen some coaches leave. You know, college football. You know, Jim Harbaugh. Uh, seen it in college basketball lately. You know, some uh, some of the older coaches are going away. Seems like college coaches may be looking to go to the professional ranks because it'll be more about coaching rather than you know everything off the field. So I thought that was pretty interesting that he would leave a job that he was pretty successful at uh, to become a defensive coordinator in the NFL. It's a flip of the script. And David Shaw is the guy that I want to use as the example here. He's at Stanford. Here comes NIL and the transfer portal. He realizes pretty quickly, I can't compete at Stanford with the transfer portal. I can't get transfers into school. And so all he's doing, he's spending his time raising NIL money, trying to retain his own roster, hoping that guys value a Stanford education, for crying out loud, hoping that people see the value of a Stanford education and stay in school at Stanford. Instead, Shaw throws in the keys. He's done. He leaves college football. And where does he resurface? Interviewing for the Chargers job. I mean, coaches are signaling in not-so-subtle ways that coaching college football isn't the job it used to be, it's not as much fun, and it's not a, uh, it's a young man's game. It is a recruiting game all the way. It's why Dan Lanning, Kenny Dillingham, you know, younger subset of coaches have emerged, and you're seeing moves like the Boston College head coach Go to the NFL where you can go, I just want to coach. And it's really different because you used to see pro coaches who would jump down to college and go, I'm tired of free agency. I'm tired of the pressure. I just want to coach football. You can't find that in college football anymore. Number four. Well, LeBron's always in the news, but uh, he's in the news for a little different reason this time. James, he has joined DraftKings as a talent ambassador and content creator where he will share his NFL picks among other projects in the betting world next season. Uh, DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins said, welcoming one of the most influential, greatest athletes of all time, LeBron James to the DraftKings family is an absolute honor and privilege. We look forward to working with a passionate sports fan who shares the same competitive mindset that echoes throughout the walls of DraftKings. Uh, James, he's not the first active athlete to partner with a sports book. Uh, Colorado's Rockies outfielder Charlie Blackman, he has a deal with Maxim Bet. And Oilers star Connor McDavid has a deal, uh, has a deal with a sportsbook as well but james is the first active nba player to endorse a sportsbook but it is now permitted under the league's new collective bargaining agreement so lebron already uh you know he's, he's always working on his game outside of the game and when he retires but uh joining up with DraftKings to put out some lebron james picks john you're going to be uh following or fading lebron on his nfl picks next year well i just it what immediately popped into my mind was 1963 paul hornig and alex karras two NFL players who eventually ended up both in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. They were suspended, both of them, in 1963. We've had Hornick on the show, and and we had him on for the Super Bowl years ago. But they were both suspended because the NFL didn't even want players showing up as endorsing casinos, endorsing gambling. They didn't want any, any you know, be nowhere near it. And now here we are, all these years later... And not only do they have partnerships, but you've got a player like LeBron of his caliber, who obviously has interests outside of the NBA, signing up more or less for an endorsement deal 
that will put him squarely in front of the public as an ambassador for online wagering. And they're having the Super Bowl in Vegas, John. I mean, think about that. That is a it's a wild thing that they're the NFL has gone such a one eighty on gambling. Like they are in the mecca of gambling in Las Vegas, and they just don't care. I find it interesting too, by the way, that Horning and Karras both made the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Meanwhile, Pete Rose, not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Number five. So Tony Snell, he used to play for the Blazers, but he's a uh, nine-year veteran in the NBA. But he is in a very unique spot right now. If he does not find a way onto a team's active roster by this Friday and then sign for the rest of the season, uh, he will be not, he will be cut off from the union's premium medical plan. Oh. Because you have to get 10 years of service to be on that retiree benefits program and that plan. Uh, so he's on what he's on a single qualification plan right now, it, uh, which covers his whole. But the 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 premium one, sorry, would cover the whole family, including his two sons, Carter and Kenzo, who are three and two, who are both diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So Snell is right now he's in the G League playing for the Boston Celtics G League team. But uh, if he does not get onto an NBA roster by Friday, he will lose all those benefits of the premium benefits that he says. He said it's truly something I need, not only for myself, but for my wife and kids. But the story is kind of very interesting here. During the 2020-21 campaign with Atlanta, Snell, Snell's nanny mentioned that Carter was showing signs of stall development, so they ended up getting, getting tested. And Tony Snell thought of nothing of it, but then he thought when he was a kid, when he was four or five, he never really talked. He only talked mm. to himself. He never related with his sisters or his cousins or his uncles. They all left him alone where he would just play basketball or play video games. So they tested Cantor. He came back on the spectrum. Tony Snell got tested himself and found out that he as well was on wow. the spectrum and played, you know, nine plus years in the NBA. But uh, now Tony Snell trying to get back on the active roster to get that 10th year of service time. But I don't know if he's going to do it. He's having a struggle in the G League this year, shooting 32%, 28% on threes. But Kind of going to be one of those cool stories if someone actually did pick him up uh, by Friday, get him on the active roster, and uh, he gets that 10th year service to help you know pay for his kids' uh, medical stuff. And, and he has the Tony Snell program, which uh, kind of like the BFT Foundation, which you know puts kids on the spectrum with kids off the spectrum, lets them you know do active things together. So kind of a cool story, something to look out for the rest of this week. Yeah, it's interesting. I I have a little a little bit of a mixed feeling about it because I want him to be picked up because he's good enough to play. Not because just because, hey, this is going to help him and it's going to help him get insurance and because he's good enough to play and that justifies it. That's the reason a team should pick him up. And if, if he's not, they probably shouldn't. But I also think there's a message in here because I've heard this type of story before, both in the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA, where the Players Association has certain benchmarks that the teams and the players need to make and meet to get sort of their lifetime pension or medical coverage. And 10 years is a long time. That's what I was thinking. 10 that's, years is a long yeah. time, especially in the NBA. That's the thing that hit me, is I was like, gosh, that is a long time to ask for a player to be covered. And so what I don't want is I don't want a bunch of players, when they hit year eight or nine, to start you know, raising their hand with stories that are stories of sympathy. And, and, and this is a good story, right? I'm not, I'm not knocking Tony Snow's story, but... I just don't want to see like a bunch of copycatting in that space going, hey, what about me? I'm at eight and a half years. I'm at nine years. Like, I, I think the justification should be that if Tony Snell 
is wise, he's got a backup plan. And the message to younger athletes and young NBA players should be, hey, have a backup plan. Invest your money wisely. If he's played that long in the league, he should be able to not only afford his insurance premiums, but he should have side businesses. He should own franchises. He should have businesses that are outside of basketball. And so there's part of me that's looking at this and going, did Tony Snell make mistakes? Did Tony Snell not plan for a future? Like, I don't want to be accused of not having a heart here, but, like, if somebody picks him up and can use him, if the Blazers could use him, pick him up. And and mission accomplished, he gets the justification. But I'm also left going, like, he's played long enough. Like, I hope he's okay if he if it doesn't happen. Yeah, and he was a first round pick, uh, you know, back in the day. So it's not as if he hasn't made a lot of money. And and it's right. like you said, when he was with the Blazers, he was in the CJ McCollum trade to the Pelicans, where they gave him a shot, and he was playing role player minutes, and then he just faded out because he just wasn't good enough. So it's one of those things where, at this point in time, he's probably not good enough to play in the NBA. But I think if someone picks him up, it's basically for that reason and for the good PR. But that's also taking away a spot that someone that deserves it. So I, it is a tough situation. I'm with you. It, it's just one of those, it's, it's, you know, it's a cool story that, you know, he's played on the spectrum his entire career. He didn't even know it. And he has, you know, for 10 plus years or 10 years, like, I don't know. It just, it was a fun little yeah. story. I thought there. Yeah. It's a fun story. Joseph Goodman, lead sports columnist at AL.com author of the book. We want Bama is going to join us next right here. Kiss my butt. Alabama fans care about their sports. They care about their football. They care about Nick Saban. They care about Kalen DeBoer. I I suspect it's a wonderful place to write columns. Our next guest, Joseph Goodman Jr., is the lead sports columnist at AL.com, the author of a book called we want Bama. He's joining us now. I got to ask him about that. Where's the title of that book come from? That is the signature book for the Saban era, Saban's Mighty Reign in Alabama. So every time an opponent during that time period in college football history became really good, they always wanted to test themselves against Alabama. So the fans would hold up signs that said, we want Bama at games. Fans would chant, we want Bama. Like, you know, if BYU got good one year and they were undefeated, they would hold up signs that say, we want Bama. And it turns into this big thing, like at the World Cup, you know, people were holding up signs that said, we want Bama. <laughs> you know, different event. North Korea wants Bama. Different stuff like that. <laughs> I love it. Joe, Give me an idea of the reaction but when, in the book. Yeah, but yeah. sorry, sorry, John. But no. in the book, you know, the the book is a little different because it kind of turns that we want Bama, uh, you know, on its head in a different way. Like if you that. if anyone wants to if anyone wants to check it out, <laughs> I love that. Hey, Always give, be selling. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right, Joe. Let me ask you the reaction when Nick Saban said, "I'm out." Um, what was the reaction in the fan base? Oh, cataclysmic, apocalyptic doom. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yes, man, yes. I mean, 
people freaked out. I mean, completely freaked out. And I mean, it's something that I saw coming like pretty much the whole year. Um, and, and I think a lot of people did, you know, like just kind of looking back, but, um, people in Alabama who wanted to believe with their hearts that Saban was going to coach as long as Bobby Bowden did. Okay. Like <laughs> that group of fans, but they had to come apart. <laughs> did, did, did they have it come apart because they thought this era's over or was it more Saban related that they liked him as the guy or was it maybe were they looking at Saban going, what did he see that we need to be worried about? <laughs> it's the reaction that a fan base has when the greatest college football coach of all time retires. <laughs> that <laughs> That is the reaction. <laughs> I mean, it, it's Nick Saban. There's not going to be another guy like him. I, and I, I like Kalen DeBoer a lot. I think – He's going to be a great coach at Alabama. He ain't going to be Saban. Will Saban have a role with Kalen DeBoer? Will he be a sounding board? Will he be around raising money? Uh, is that a good thing if he's around raising money? Uh, what will his role be moving forward? Man, Saban. <laughs> Nick Saban is chilling on the beach right now. It's down in his his. Is huge multi-million dollar mansion on the island in Jupiter with the Halliburtons and Tiger Woods. I mean, Nick, come on. You think he's going to leave that to come back and help Kalen DeBoer in, Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama? Like, no, he's not. I, you know, Kalen needed to say that when he was hired, okay, because he needed to keep as many recruits in the or many as many players and recruits in the fold as he could, and. I, you saw what happened. It was like mass exodus. So that's what that was about. Kalen's going to have to be his own guy, and I know he's going to be. Um, and I think he's going to do a great job. It's just it, it's going to be completely different than the way Nick Saban ran things, though. Joseph Goodman with us, lead sports columnist, AL.com, covers Bama, among other things, in that footprint. Uh, DeBoer comes in, uh, Greg Byrne, the athletic director at Alabama, know him well, have, have, have had him on the show. Uh, I think it was a good hire. In, it, it looked to me like he was zeroed in on DeBoer all the way. Did you ever get a sense that Dan Lanning was even a consideration, or was it DeBoer from start to finish? I don't know about that. Um, I, I, like, I honestly like DeBoer better than I like Lanning. Um so I would say that it was a good hire because, you know, Dan Lanning, or let's face it, he lost twice to DeBoer. So why would you hire that guy when you can hire DeBoer? I mean, that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, you hire Dan Lanning and then Kirby Smart kind of has, can hold that against mm -hmm. him, uh, you know, with the recruits down here in the SEC um, like this is this is my guy, you know, whatever. I mean, Saban definitely did that with Kirby. So, um, you know, he hit the Greg hit the reset button, and um, it took a lot of guts, you know. And good for him. I mean, he had really good success uh, going outside the South and hiring Nate Oates, the basketball coach. And Oates is 
turned Alabama basketball around, although they still can't make it to the Elite Eight. But that's a different story. Um, uh, you know, I would say hiring DeBoer uh, is, was a very, like, typical Greg Byrne hire. Um, that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's that's kind of a good thing. But, yeah, you know, kind of fits the profile. The landscape of college athletics, uh, you know, obviously we got a good look at it out here with the Pac-12 movement and Oregon off to the Big Ten and Washington and, you know, How's all that going over in the SEC footprint, or is it just so SEC-centric that people still see that, you know, it's just a matter of how many playoff spots the SEC will grab next season? No, you know, the SEC is its own different universe, okay? So, you know, anything outside of it is just on the periphery, but I would say that people – you know, in Birmingham, Alabama, which is the number one TV market in the country for college football, definitely pay attention to everything that happens everywhere in the sport. So, um, yeah, those teams, those four teams moving to the Big Ten, the, you know, the big shakeup in college football, like everyone has their fingers on the pulse of everything happening around the country. So, uh, and then you got to keep in, you know, keep in mind that. Bo Nix like went out and played for Oregon, so everyone in Alabama was really in tune with Oregon for the past two years, just based on Bo Nix. And so, when uh, all that went down with uh, Oregon and Washington, and you know the decimation of what we used to call the Pac-12, um, yeah, people people are paying attention to that for sure. Um, it's a new world now. Uh, it's going to be, and it. Like what we see now, like the the power four, whatever you want to call it, like it's not going to be like this for long either. We're still in like this transition and transition transitional period. So, you know, more changes are coming. College football is in in three years, four years. College football is not going to look anything like it's going to look this next season. What do you think it looks like, or what causes that? Is is it a, is it the ACC implosion, Florida State, or does college football break away from the other sports, or what do you think happens? I think there's going to be a new division, like Division Zero, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be all the big schools that can buy into it and, you know, essentially pay players like employees, and then it'll be everyone else in, you know, FBS or whatever you want to call call the other division. I'm looking forward to that, you know, Um I, I still think uh, there's going to be a lot of good football in that second division if this happens, and those playoffs will be really compelling. Uh, but that's what I think is going to happen in the end. I think it'll be, um, you know, just like the AFC and the NFC for the NFL or whatever, but it'll be college football. Joe Goodwin with us, columnist, Alabama.com, AL.com. You had a great column the other day on Ohio State. You said, you know, it's title. Uh, why steal signs when you can steal players? And Ohio <laughs> State, Ohio State, going all in. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, and and how was that received as you wrote that? Well, it was just kind of taking the pulse of Alabama's fan base at the time. Uh, you know, you have Ohio State, which is you know kind of like the Alabama of the Midwest, and 
they they really wanted to flex their financial might, and Alabama can't compete with that. Just to be frank, I mean, Ohio State's fan base is a lot larger, um, and they have much deeper pockets, and so uh, you know that was a that was a shot to the gut for Alabama to see that happen. Um, but you know. I have this expression that I like to use with teams, uh, you know, down here that aren't Alabama or Georgia. It's desperate money. Like what what Ohio State did, okay, was like the desperate money play. Um, Texas A&M did that in 2022 when they had the number one recruiting class in the country. Uh, You know, the Longhorns are doing that right now. Like Ohio State watched Michigan win that championship, you know, I mean, let's just be honest, in like this nefarious fashion, and they said, forget it. All bets are off. You know, we are doing everything we can to buy a championship, and that's what they've done. And so, Brian Day, I'm telling you, if, they don't, if he doesn't win a national championship in two years, he's going to get fired. Yeah, and I think you're seeing, like we were talking about this earlier in the show, that we're watching coaches leave college football to go to the NFL because they're going – we don't want to deal with the essentially the free agency and having to raise NIL money, and we we just want to coach football. They're going to the NFL. It used to be the other way. People say, "I'm tired of pro football. I want to go. Call, I want to go work with kids." You know, I think we're seeing different kinds of coaches. And you know, you wrote too that you know a lot of us are viewing Kalen DeBoer following Nick Saban as that's an impossible act. That's really hard. Who would take that job? You see it a little bit differently. Tell me what you mean by that when you kind of look at that job and the act that he has to follow and the expectations. Yeah, I mean, this is a new world. Like, Nick Saban didn't want anything to do with that world. So he cashed in his chips. And Kalen DeBoer has a blank canvas, all right? I mean, college football is going to be so much different in the future. Like, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, that was the saving era. And then everything after that is this new world for college football. So that's what Kellen DeBoer is walking into. And it's just going to matter how much money he can raise. I mean, that, that, that's what college football comes down to right now at the moment until they change the rules or they get a handle on everything or uh, they create this new division or Congress steps in or whatever is going to happen, okay, whatever mechanism triggers, you know, sanity, um, it's just going to come down to how much money can you raise. And if Kalen DeVore can play that game, uh, you know, he's going to have a chance to write his own legacy at Alabama. Can he play that game? Will Alabama fans, who are obviously uh, unhinged in the best of ways, will they will they write checks? Will they support the NIL collective? I, I think so because, you know, really Nick Saban in a lot of ways kept Alabama's uh, Wales in check. Okay, he ran and hit the program his own way, and he he had his own. He had the million dollars for the Bryant Foundation, which is like there's this thing called the Bryant Foundation in Alabama, and just to be in it, you have to donate a million dollars. And so, I mean, there is a lot of money down there, um, and I think the big donors who've kind of been kept at arm's length, like I think they're lining up now. Okay. Mm. Uh, they saw what happened with Caleb Downs going to Ohio State, Julian Sang in Ohio State. Uh, so, 
people are so passionate here. Uh, you know, they'll tie to Alabama football like they do their church. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Goodman is with us. Uh, man, I love that. Uh, when you uh, when you're looking at your career, let's step back now. Um, you know, before you got into journalism, you were a painter, right? <laughs> yeah. So my dad was an industrial painter, um, and so uh, before I went to college. I mean, this is when I was really young. I was 18, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, after high school, during during my senior year of high school, I was a, an industrial painter. And, um, you know, I, I, I did some really big jobs for uh, huge factories, you know, spraying steel, uh, like up 150 feet on man lifts and just like these enormous structures that, you know, you need a car to drive the length of. And, I, you know... I got, I got, a, I, I made enough money, okay, to put a nice down payment on a house. But then I was like, you know what? I kind of just want to go to college and be a writer, <laughs> right? So yeah, I, I, you know, my dad was an, my dad was an industrial painter, um, sold paint, and, and so uh, I did that for a while with him. Uh, and so I, what I'm getting at is, you know, you've done that's like that sounds like it's harder work, but then again. You're dealing with Alabama's fan base. Those are different jobs, you know. Yeah, I didn't have to alert the FBI to death threats when I was when I was a painter, you know. <laughs> it, and I guess that's good because you know, uh, you know, I covered Indiana basketball. They were rabid fans. I and I, I've I've been around things that where people care, and that's a good thing when you're writing and people care. But you know, yeah, death threats. No, you you know, you don't. Nobody deserves that. Well, I mean, come on. You know how it is. You're in this business long enough, like, that's how it goes. I mean, I've been a writer now for, like, going on 25 years. Uh, yeah, I covered uh, I covered the Heat when they had LeBron uh, for the Miami Herald. You know, people, people are crazy about their sports. Uh, I covered the Gators when they had Tebow. Like, you're always going to get fans that take it a little too far. <laughs> what was LeBron like to cover? Man, LeBron, to me, just does not get enough credit for being such a social catalyst. Like, I love LeBron James, okay? And I think he, when he gets done and everyone reflects on his life and his career, they're going to put him up there with Muhammad Ali because just look what he did during the pandemic. I mean, he really rallied the sports world and and kind of like saved in a way the soul of the country i mean this is this is just my opinion and i i wrote a lot about this in the book we want family too um mm. but yeah i think lebron's great man i think he's um you know whatever who's the best player in the country who's the best player ever i mean i don't know but i just think um there's no one. There's not going to be anyone like that guy. Just what he, I mean, look, he's still playing at such an elite level. Yes. You know. So I mean, his impact on our society has just spanned such a great length of time. I mean, Jordan sold shoes. Okay, congratulations. You sell tennis shoes. Like, look what LeBron has done. Look what he's managed to accomplish outside the game. It's remarkable. Joe Goodman with us. His book is called We Want Bama. 
Check it out. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. Bunch of people rated it five stars. You got to be proud about that. And uh, actually, actually, it's one of the most controversial sports books ever written. Okay, it was not well received here in the South. Really? Um, yeah. So, you know, if you want to read a book that really makes you think, read We Want Bama because there are so many people here in the South that just went and once they read the first introduction. They were like, they immediately went to Amazon and gave it a one-star review. <laughs> so <laughs> it is like when I say it's one of the most controversial sports books ever written, it is. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm buying it right now, Joe Goodman. So at least you, you sold you sold at least one book during this appearance. Uh, last question: How much patience will Alabama have with Kalen DeBoer if? There's a step back if um, you know he doesn't make the playoff a couple years in a row. Is there going to be big outcry? Is that just how it is there, or will there be a little understanding? No patience, no patience at all. He has to make the playoffs next year. <laughs> it's just that's amazing. just the way it is. I mean, I'm yeah. Yeah, I'm being dead serious. I know, I know. Is. If they lose to Auburn at home, like they might want to fire him on the spot. I'm not kidding. Like. It, there's going to be so much pressure on him immediately. Like, he does not get a grace period. He doesn't get, like, you can have this free year to figure out your staff. Like, none of that, okay? <laughs> I mean, he has to make the playoffs his first year. And he understands that. Joe Goodman, you're the best. The book's called Nick We Saban Want Bama. Always, listen, yeah. Nick Saban always said, when I lose the game, they're going to want me out of here. I won't even have to retire. I mean, and he was right. He was he was right. He never lost three games. <laughs> I love that. Joe, you take care of yourself, man. It's always good to hear you. Okay, guys. See you, man. All right. There he goes. Joe Goodman. We Want Bama is the name of the book. I love that interview. Leave it here. Well, we started today's show by talking about yesterday's show. I was a little confused yesterday off the top of the show as I opened the phone lines and did about a five or seven minute kind of rant about, you know, Damian Lillard's return to Portland and the 37 foot shot in Paul George's face and the legacy of Lillard and the, I think what kind of a complex return. I don't think Damian Lillard's return tonight to Moda center is a simple story. There's a complexity to it that involves his contract status, the death of owner Paul Allen, trustee Jody taking over, Neil Olshay's role, um, a Western Conference Finals appearance in 2019 that ended in a sweep. The you know the, you know really if you look back to 2019 and that that playoff run that was the win over Oklahoma City, the win over Denver and then getting swept by the Warriors. That should have been like a mark of delineation, that series with the Warriors. There should have been a, you know, Damian Lillard and the Blazers before that, and then Damian Lillard and the Blazers after that. And it should have been the story of, like, that was when the Blazers bumped their head against the NBA's ceiling, ran into the Warriors, went into the 2019 offseason, made all of these big moves, because they were in the Western Conference Finals, after all, made all of these big moves that 
put them in position to break through in 2020, 2021, and beyond. There should have been a before and after 2019. But no, all there was was 2019. That was it. And oh, by the way, as Jack Nicholson once said, that's as good as it got. That's it. That was making it as a Blazer fan in the Damian Lillard era. So it's a complex return to Portland for Lillard. It's not a simple story. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. There's a complexity to what we're watching that tonight will manifest itself in Lillard showing up and dressing in the visiting locker room and walking out onto the court and getting a standing ovation and having a lot of Blazer fans like the barista at the coffee shop I was in this morning who say, this is the biggest game of the year. That's kind of sad, but true. Like, not a playoff game for this team this season. Not a, you know, season opening night that held all of the marbles and all of the stakes. No, it's the return of a former player in the middle of a dismal season that becomes kind of the biggest ticket of the Blazers' season. So it's complicated. It's not just, oh, Dame's back in town. Let's go down to the arena or tune in and see what happens. No, there's a complexity and a depth to it that I think is really interesting. Now, yesterday on the show, I opened the show and I said, tell me how you feel about it. And then I said how I felt about it, and I talked about it, and Stephen talked about it. And then I went and I pivoted because I have all these screens in front of me with various things open. And one of them has the screener software that is that shows, you know, if you call in on one of the 12 phone lines where you are and, and you know, this call screener's you know, going to put your name in your city and talk to you before I talk to you. And I pivot over to that screen and nobody's there. And here we are, like yesterday was the eve of Lillard's return. Kind of a big deal and nobody's there. And so I went after the show and I went back and listened to it and I thought, gosh, did I set up the topic wrong? Did I ask the wrong question? Sometimes you ask the wrong question. Did I um, did I not really frame it correctly in a way that seemed you know important? And I know people were listening because the very next segment we got a ton of calls and people were listening. And later, even yesterday, I he- I heard from people who heard it and said, and they said, well, you know, I had something to say but I didn't call in. And I said, well, why? And I started today's show by saying, well. Why didn't people want to talk about Damian Lillard yesterday? Is it that it was painful? Is it that it was a reminder of what could have been? Is it that same kind of thing where, like, you know, after a loss, Duck fans don't want to talk about it, Beaver fans don't want to talk about it? You don't want to talk about it after your team loses. Is it? Is it that? Is it, uh, it, was it me? Was it something else? And we got calls today from people who were, I think, very candid, who sort of talked around the idea that, you know, they're not, What's left? A. What's left to say about Lillard's departure, and tonight? B. It's not a happy story for the Blazers. Lillard, you know, tonight is going to be. He's busy talking to reporters today, saying, you know, he does think it will end with him back in a Blazers uniform. And I'm like, that's good for you, Dame. That might be really cool for you, but what if you can't play anymore and you cost a lot of money at that point? That's not necessarily great for the Blazers organization. Like. There's part of this from a Blazers standpoint that's it's not a happy story. And 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 a lot of that is rooted in the fact that the ownership and the management teams have just failed. They've failed fans, they have failed Damian Lillard, 
The, and I think fans in Lillard tonight, we're going to see that fans in Lillard were in this thing together in the last couple of years, particularly right now as Lillard is going, hey, what could have been? It's kind of sad. It could have been better. It could have been different. Fans are saying those same things. I hope if you're going to the game tonight, you enjoy it. Uh, the Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.